Welcome to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the Democracy in Latin America episode. I'm James Long, host of this podcast and associate professor of political science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. Americans of Latin American descent are increasingly important voting blocks in American elections, from the descendants of Cuban exiles in Miami to Dominicans in New York to Hispanics in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. But few Americans seem to really grasp the politics of the country south of its border, from which many present-day Americans originally hail. Certainly a variety of humanitarian crises, such as the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, the rise of MS-13 and caravans at the border have garnered headlines and attention in the US, including how politicians have capitalized on them for political gain. But this belies an incredibly complex, rich and diverse history of democratic growth and stagnation across Latin American countries over the past few decades that most folks probably have at best only a passing familiarity with. To discuss contemporary politics in Latin America, I am joined today by Michael Albertas. Mike is an associate professor of political science at the University of Chicago. His research focuses on the political economy of Latin America, including democratic stability and backsliding, and the different types of policies that governments pursue that help or hurt citizens' economic well being. His first book, Autocracy and Redistribution The Politics of Land Reform, examines why and when land reform programs are implemented. And his second book, Authoritarianism and the Elite Origins of Democracy is co-authored with our own Victor Minaldo and examines the conditions under which dictatorships transition to democracies. In addition to numerous other published academic papers, Mike has a new book just out this year, Property Without Rights, Origins and Consequences of the Property Rights Gap. I am pleased to have Professor Michael Albertus joining me today from Chicago. Hi, Mike. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Mike, I've been wanting to discuss politics and democratization in Latin America for a while now, but thus far we haven't had an episode dedicated entirely to the region. Um, however, we have at various points discussed Latino voting blocs in America and how aspects of Latin American politics have made their way into American politics, including with our mutual friend and colleague Victor Minaldo. Um, but as you and I both agree, Latin America is worth discussing on its own terms beyond how it affects American political life. So. Where to start? Mike, I thought a lot of um, most Americans' understanding of Latin American politics was probably either formed during the Cold War, when we think about these countries as having either left-wing or right-wing governments or insurgencies that were actively receiving American or Soviet support, or maybe they their, their first impressions are more recent with shows like Narcos on Netflix about the drug trade and political violence. But these are all disaster narratives <laughs> for the most part. So Mike, take us back to the region's democratic roots. When did countries in Latin America first transition to democracy and why? Sure thing, yeah. Um, you know, Spanish and Portuguese colonization left an indelible footprint in Latin America. Colonizers appropriated land at a, at a massive scale and they forced indigenous populations and imported slaves into forced labor relations on things like sugar plantations um, and mining and, and other avenues as well. And, you know, that became fundamental to how life lived uh, and, and was lived by populations. After all, you know, upwards of maybe 90% or 95% of populations at the time were rural and they depended on um, land for their livelihoods. Uh, and so when it came to independence, there was really, um, you know, a big push by, um, you know, first by, um, well, first I suppose it's it's worth making a distinction amongst the elite as well, right? So you had basically what were known as criollos and, and peninsulares that were um, in the colonies and, you know, helping to run the, the colonies. And the criollos were Spanish born, um, you know, uh, sorry, the criollos were, were um, born in the colonies, but they were of Spanish blood. And so they weren't able to access the highest echelons of, of power. And that contrasts with the peninsulares who were individuals of Spanish blood who were born in Spain um, and then went and worked in the colonies. And so there, there became this divide over a period of time as the, as the criollos sort of felt like they were up against um, you know, glass ceiling politically um, and economically within the colonies. And so when Napoleon invaded um, Spain in particular, so leave, leaving aside Brazil here for just a minute, when uh, Napoleon invaded um, Spain in the early 1800s, 
the criollo sort of took this um, power vacuum in, in Spain as an opportunity to push for independence in Latin America. And so there was a, a move for independence. You know, Simón Bolívar would be a, a classic example of a criollo who seized on this opportunity to oust their local Spanish colonial rule from, um, you know, what is modern day, you know, Colombia, Venezuela, for example. And so that, you know, that struggle became um, a bigger struggle over time, which I suspect we'll, we'll get into later. Um, and the struggle eventually came to include people who were of sort of lower class um, backgrounds and that kind of thing. Of course, some of these people were conscripted to fight in the, in the battles for independence, but the, the initial fight was really one that um, kind of was a function of this divide within the elite class in, in colonial Latin America. Well, walk us through the revolt in Haiti, because that was sort of the, you know, basically what became former slaves revolting against the, the elite. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Haiti is a pretty interesting example um, and a rather unique circumstance in which, um, you know, Haiti, like um, Cuba, the Dominican Republic, uh, northern Brazil, we're all places where, you know, economies that revolve to a large degree on uh, plantation agriculture and the importation of slaves from West Africa. And so, um, you know, that was that was that was certainly true um, sort of throughout the kind of throughout the Caribbean. Um, and, you know, Haiti is this one example in which, um, you know, the the slave um the slave class effectively rose up and threw off the colonizers. And it is, it's interesting because, you know, Haiti actually at the time was a relatively, um, you know, a relatively wealthy economy. And after throwing off their um, colonial occupiers, the, you know, European powers basically agreed to, um, you know, create an embargo on the, on the island of Haiti um, because Haiti also owed, um, you know, debts to a variety of different um, places through, um, you know, through a variety to a variety of different countries, and so um, you know they created this embargo, and that that really sort of strangled the Haitian economy over time, and that was actually part of what set the path for um, you know Haiti's underdevelopment in the longer term. What about the Mexican Revolution? What what happened in Mexico? Yeah, so. Um, Mexico is another um, pretty interesting case and a bit more typical of what happened, um, you know, in, in, in a number of the revolutions in Latin America, you know, not, not so dissimilar in certain ways from, let's say, um, you know, the Bolivian revolution. But in, in Mexico, what happened is there was, a, you know, there was really a struggle for, um, it was a struggle for resources and power and, and land um, throughout the course of the 19th century. So again, in the post-independence period, there was continued appropriation of, um, of indigenous property. And, you know, in, in the case of Mexico, a very small percentage of people, uh, of landowners, owned the vast majority of land on the eve of the Mexican Revolution. And so, you know, there was this appropriation of native land that was going on um, at the same time that the country was starting to Industrialized for the first time under uh, the Porfiriato, under Porfirio Diaz, who was a, a dictator who ruled for um, several decades, just at the at the end of the, the period just prior to the Mexican Revolution, um, and so, you know, there was there were a lot of tensions that were um, that were being felt sort of throughout Mexico because of the um, sort of creeping power uh, of of large elites. Um, and again, you know, these are sort of the, the modern, uh, or they were sort of the robber barons of the era in Mexico, getting involved in things like, um, you know, natural resource exploitation, but also building railroads uh, and, and early kind of heavy industry. And then again, there were large landowners as well who were very powerful, who were um, involved in some cases in, um, you know, in exporting, but a lot of things like cattle production um, and also, you know, sugar and other things as well, uh, tobacco production. And so, you know, um, there, again, there was tension um, throughout Mexico because of this. And there were a number of, um, you know, rebel leaders and um, disaffected elites who fought the status quo from uh, a series of different 
parts of the country, um, and eventually all kind of coalesced in, in Mexico City, culminating ultimately in the revolution. Um, but in the early part of the revolution, a lot of it was actually pushed by sort of, um, you know, peasant organizing in, in, um, in southern and central Mexico. So why is land and land reform, you know, these are topics you've written a lot about, but, you know, anytime a political scientist says land, land reform, I immediately think of Latin America. Why is land so important and why has land reform, or at least in this period, been so fraught with sort of inspiring violence? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think land is not only a, a cornerstone of understanding politics and economics in Latin America, but I think it's actually more broadly true in other regions as well. The balance of the population actually in the world at large uh, only became urban in, I believe, 2011. And so, you know, these countries, and certainly in Latin America, but also um, this is true in a lot of, continues to be true in a number of countries um, in contemporary Africa, and certainly historically in places like Southeast Asia, East Asia, Southern Europe, these countries were predominantly rural. And when you look back, um, you know, more than, say, 75 years or something, the, the great majority of, of um, the workforce was working in agriculture. And land is, was obviously the key, um, you know, the key source of income and the key source of sort of social security, if you will. It was sort of uh, um, people depended for their livelihoods. Um, entirely basically on on land and so if you had access to land that was very different from if you from a cir circumstance in which you depended on say um, a large landowner or um, someone who was renting you land um, in order to actually um, get your livelihood right so you know again to take a step back you know the vast majority of populations were were rural at this time and they depended on land for their livelihoods uh, and it was this was Land inequality was something that, you know, about a hundred years ago was rampant really throughout most of the um, most of the developing world. So, you know, maybe let's say the largest few percent of large landowners in uh, a lot of Latin America owned eighty or ninety percent of the land or more, and this could be traced back to the colonial era um, and the the post independence period as well. So, you know, there was very high land concentration, obviously through land appropriation and um, you know, land grants in the colonial era, and that shifted in the independence period as the colonial um, apparatus was overthrown, but a lot of um, individuals who were involved in the independence conflicts ended up appropriating those lands. And so, you know, you get the situation where, for example, in Peru, where I've done research, you know, up until like 19, the 1960s, uh, the late 1960s in the highlands of Peru, a lot of, for a lot of large landowners, you could actually trace their, um, you know, trace their land holdings back to the colonial era, and which was pretty amazing. And it fundamentally defined people's livelihoods and lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like my grade school perception of of colonization in Latin America is like Cortez showing up to steal the gold from the Aztecs. But the reality is, right, and what you're saying is that a lot of the, the allure over time was actually people from countries like you know, Germany, Spain, Portugal, France, uh, the Netherlands, coming and living there because they were able to get rich off of land. I mean, first of all, by stealing it, but then sort of what the land is able to produce, they become landowners. That's sort of the allure over a longer period of time about why people then wanted to settle in Latin America who were from European origin. Sure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think there was there was that's certainly um you know an important part of the story, right? And again, a lot of it was traced initially to the colonial period. So there were a lot of Spaniards, um, you know, and Portuguese that came to the the Americas, but that's certainly not it, um, um, or it's certainly not limited to that. So, for example, if you look at the southern cone, particularly let's say um, Argentina and Uruguay, you have a really large number of Italians who end up coming, um, you know, immigrating from Italy in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and sort of the aftermath of Italian unification um, from places like, um, you know, Sicily and, and Naples and, and um, you know, play southern Italy where there were a lot of um, problems with land ownership and, um, and rural life as well. And they were started, started basically hemorrhaging, um, you know, part of the rural populations. And they, some of those people ended up in, in places like Argentina and Uruguay where where they became landowners 
Um, not all of them, but a number of them, and some of them did fairly well for themselves. Yeah, and it started to, um, you know, started to um, become larger, sort of larger landowners, larger farmers in the countryside. So take us now into the 20th century and during the Cold War, because I think another kind of big, um, uh, for lack of a better term, stereotype of Latin America in the 20th century is I, I think of every government as either being a right-wing dictator being supported by the United States with a left-wing rural insurgency fighting against it, supported by Soviet Union, or the other way around. It's a leftist who's gained power, supported by the Soviets, and the United States is then um, funding right-wing contras to try to overthrow it or something like that. Is that does that um, mischaracterize uh, the politics of the 20th century, and does that also um, not allow us to see sort of democratic openings or transitions to democracies that were actually occurring? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Cold War certainly was fundamental in the region. Um, you know, particularly starting in the in the in the fifties, and and really starting with the Cuban Revolution in a lot of ways. I think that was really a um, just a fundamental watershed moment in the region in terms of the Cold War. Which but is it does, I nineteen fifty nine, nineteen sixty. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, I think that um, you know, nonetheless, that does sort of. Um, you know, cast in an in, in outsized sort of shadow, I think, on local politics as well. But, um, but it was certainly important, right? The U.S. and the Soviet Union played a tug of war for influence in Latin America. And, you know, the Soviets funneled ideas and financial support to communist parties and rebel movements um, throughout the region. And the U.S. pushed, pushed back by aiding backers of the establishment and often right-wing reactionaries. And sometimes, of course, the, the tug of war did help to completely overhaul local politics. And so the example here that we were just talking about um, of Cuba, right, really probably the most prominent example in the Soviet ledger. So, you know, Fidel Castro leads this leftist rebel movement and, um, you know, topples the, the Cuban government um, and ultimately ends up getting a lot of, um, you know, aligning himself with the, with the Soviet Union, getting a lot of support that leads to things like the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Bay of Pigs, et cetera. Um, you know, and then the U.S. on its side um, had a number of prominent tallies, including the, uh, the coup that displaced Cobra Arbenz in, in Guatemala in the 1950s, and, and probably most famously, the coup that toppled Salvador Allende and replaced them with General Pinochet in Chile. So these countries are still struggling with the legacies of the Cold War in a lot of ways. But more often, the, the forces, I think, tended to balance one another out to stalemate or help to tilt the balance one way or another at certain times without fundamentally shaping um, local politics or determining local politics. So when does Latin America democratize, if, such a, if there is an answer to such a question? Yeah, it really came in waves. So again, there were, um, you know, there was kind of an initial wave that happened in you know, the early 20th century with several, several countries, right? These are, again, sort of initial democratic openings. And democracy at the time looked a bit more like oligarchy, right? Um, so again, countries like Chile, Argentina, Colombia, Costa Rica, in the, in, during the Great Depression um, and, and sort of World War, um, you know, World War II, you had a backlash. And so there were a lot of coups in these places and there were democratic reversions. And then you started to get a greater opening again, um, which led to sort of modern democracy in Latin America in starting in the 1970s. And then, you know, over the course of a couple of decades, more and more countries joined the, the club of democracies in the region. And it's worth noting Spain and Portugal themselves did not really transition to democracy until the 1970s as well. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So you know, Portugal in 1976, 1975, 1976, basically, and Spain in 1977. But then I also I also think of then in you know kind of the 70s in 80s the sort of um, back and forth between military dictators. Then the dictators agree to have elections, and there are elections, and then. You know, sometimes it holds, sometimes it reverts again. Is that cyclical nature accurate? And is that still true? It is. It is. There's a lot of truth to that. You know, there are countries that are classic kind of cyclers, if you will, between democracy and dictatorship. So Argentina ends up flipping back and forth between democracy and dictatorship, you know, many times in the course of the 20th century. The same is true 
of Peru. Um, but then you had countries like, um, you know, again, to go to say Colombia, right? A country that basically transitioned kind of early in the 20th century, then it reverted to dictatorship in the 19, from the very late, well, really the 1950s. And then it transitions again to democracy in 1960. And while it struggles in a lot of ways, it's remained democratic since then. Um, the same was true, you know, in or similar for a long period of time in Venezuela. So, um, you know, you had a, a nascent kind of democratic opening there in the mid 1940s. There was a reversion to dictatorship. There was a transition back to democracy in the late 1950s. And that lasted up until the 2000s. And, you know, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, a little bit later in a different context, but um, but you know, so you have a number of countries that that do have a little bit more of this um, kind of linear progression, if you will, or maybe they have you know two episodes of democracy. Um, and again, that contrasts with the countries that are flipping kind of back and forth, right? The Argentinas and Perus of the region. Well, let, let's talk about Venezuela because I think a lot of um, people today kind of don't remember Venezuela being the old Venezuela that we, you know, we grew up with. Um, just because it's sort of now this boogeyman, it's like the second you know, Cuba. Uh, I should also note I, I love that Venezuela is in the news this week because they were mentioned in this, D, you know, DNI report about you know allegations that they were trying to uh, influence the 2020 election in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I think it's like Venezuela is like this boogeyman, but I, I don't think people really know a lot about it. So walk us through what happened in the 2000s and, and where we're at today. Yeah, Venezuela is a really tough, uh, you know, it's a tough case. Um, and it's really it's experienced um, a really difficult couple of decades here. So, you know, Venezuela in the 19 from the 1960s through the 1990s, in a lot of ways, was this sort of darling of democracy in the, in Latin America, um, and it had a really great economy as well. Um, you know, it still had it still struggled with issues of of inequality and corruption and things like that. But to a large degree, it was it was fairly it was really quite well functioning. And and to the extent that there were a lot of people who migrated to, to Venezuela, a number of, um, for example. Eastern Europeans ended up migrating to, to Venezuela um, at, in, in that time period. And uh, so it attracted a lot of people and it was a fairly well-functioning um, you know, democracy, really, I would say quite well-functioning democracy. Um, but you know, that hid a, a few weaknesses. Um, there's always been um, a dependence on oil, but there were a series of crises that occurred in Latin America in the, um, you know, in the, the latter part of the 20th century. That that hit countries in different ways. So initially, you know, you had the debt crisis in Latin America in the early 1980s, and that started to put an end to dictatorship in some places. But it also created a lot of macroeconomic imbalances um, and dependencies on international institutions for assistance. And so, um, and you know, that continued in various ways for maybe a decade. And so, Venezuela really got hit by. Um, you know, a period of inflation and macroeconomic problems in the in the early '90s, um, and and it effectively had a banking crisis, and that really discredited the existing political class at the time. Um, the two main political parties, which were, um, um, you know, COPE and, and Democratic Action, as they were known, and um, you know, really discredited those those parties, and it left this opportunity for an outsider to come in and and cast existing parties as Basically, rotten to the core um, and not connected to, uh, not working on behalf of, of citizens. And so, you know, Chavez was the one who took up, um, who really led this movement, and was elected um, elected president in 1998, and uh, you know, was seated in 1999, and effectively over the next uh, 10 years, basically consolidated political power um, and. That ended up being the death knell of democracy in Venezuela. I mean, initially, you know, the country he was riding an oil boom and, um, you know, created all these social programs really that um, helped lift a lot of Venezuelans out of poverty, which which was what made him quite politically popular. Um, but he used his popularity to attack his foes in a lot of ways and to to shift the to tilt the the, the playing field, um, the democratic playing field, and his. To, in his advantage, um, and so ultimately he got rid of um, you know term limits um, in 2009, and you know was reelected many times. And you know once Chavez died, 
you know, Maduro was sort of the, the person that he blessed to, to follow him and, and Maduro has sort of tightened the grip. And, you know, Venezuela is now, like you said, it's sort of alongside Cuba as being this kind of cautionary tale in some ways because the, the economy has just absolutely cratered. I mean, there are, there are health issues now in Venezuela that you haven't seen in, in decades in the country. There's, you know, there have been periods of, um, of real, of a lack of food, right, of starvation amongst parts of the population. And um, the economy has, has shrunk enormously. And so the country, and now, you know, millions and millions of people um, have literally fled the country and, and you find them throughout Latin America and, and, and Miami and other places. What degree is this just Chavez and Maduro being kind of dictators versus socialists, right? Because I think the American narrative is sort of this is what happens when a country is socialist. Is that true or is this more about them being kind of dictators and, and authoritarian? Well, there's, an, there's maybe an element of truth to, to both of them, but I think it was sort of socialism that was kind of taken um, too far, but but it was also really a function, I think, of authoritarian sort of tendencies and authoritarian rule. Um, why do I say that? So, you know, again, as I mentioned previously, you know, Venezuela in the 2000s rode um, this enormous commodity boom that, um, you know, was experienced really throughout the, throughout the world um, up until the financial crisis, right? And the financial crisis, um, you know, in, in the U.S. in 2008, 2009, really started to put an end, end to this commodity boom. And, it, you know, lasted just a very short period of time longer. But it, it, it quickly, um, you know, it lasted about a decade, right, from the early 2000s to, to roughly 2010. And so, you know, Chavez used this enormous amount of um, surplus because um, the economy depends really heavily on oil and plowed it into social programs. And really, like I said, lifted a lot of people out of poverty and became very popular as a result, um, much to the chagrin of, um, of U.S. presidents. Um, you know, and he really, he, he put the thumb in the eye, I think, of, of um, uh, you know, U.S. foreign policy and U.S. presidents, Bush, et cetera, at the time. Um, you know, to the extent that uh, the U.S. actually sort of tacitly um, you know, gave backing to a uh, coup against Chavez in 2002 that brief, briefly displaced him for, from power for a couple of days. And then he returned to power, um, you know, even stronger than ever, basically. Whoops. Um, but, <laughs> what's that? Whoops. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, oops. And uh, yeah, but then, you know, it was really the, it was the dictatorship element that really put a, that really drove a con- the, you know, Venezuelan economy into the ground. So, to redefining property rights and uh, making it very difficult for people to do business in Venezuela um, and make, making it very difficult for the, the opposition to compete against Chavez, hounding them out of the country, um, trying, trying to imprison them and harass them and that kind of thing. That made it really very difficult for you know, both foreigners to do business as well as people domestically to do business. And so that that generated a host of distortions to the economy and really brought brought the Venezuelan economy to its knees um, in tandem with the consolidation of dictatorship there. Yeah, so that gets to the that that gets to something I want to talk about, which is your new book. Um, your new book is titled "Property Without Rights: Origins and Consequences of the Property Rights Gap." Um, Mike, what do you mean by property rights, and why are property rights important? Yeah, so you know, property rights are this kind of um, you know, in some ways you might think about it as, as this sort of vague thing, right? Um, you know, but really property rights are, are rights to undertake certain actions in a specific domain or over a specific asset. And let me give you an example. So land, for, in, land, for instance, um, you know, property rights over land may include things like the right to sell or lease land or to use it as collateral to, to obtain loans or to, vi- to divide it um, or to hand it down. Um, pass it on, if you will. Um, there are analogous rights for something like a house or even for ideas, right? Intellectual property rights. Um, and property rights are important because they provide specificity and predictability and they reduce uncertainty. And that can help to underpin investment in property and to facilitate transactions in markets. For instance, if I know that I had a well defined and secure property right over my house, then I can borrow against it to fund, let's say, my kids going to college. Um, and banks will recognize it as collateral with a precise value. If I don't have security prop- secure property rights over my house, however, um, you know, I may have trouble selling it because buyers don't know what they're getting. 
and I may have a hard time defending it against counterclaiming. So under those circumstances, you know, I might ask my, myself things like, you know, why should I put on a new roof or a new deck if somebody might come along and try and take it from me? Why are there such large gaps then in who has property rights and different types of property rights within Latin American countries? Yeah, so it's a pretty interesting puzzle, actually. Um, you know, in some ways, and this is, you know, I get to this in my book, in some ways, property rights in Latin America were actually more stable in the early 20th century than they were, you know, in the late 20th century. In other words, property rights almost took a step backwards in Latin America. And what happened is that, you know, countries started to reckon with this colonial, um, with the colonial past that I mentioned previously, right? And in particular, this really lopsided distribution of land. So a lot of countries started to, um, typically under dictatorship, um, attack large landowners, expropriate their large land holdings, and redistribute those lands to, to peasant groups. Um, but, you know, the governments that did that, um, that redistributed land, that seized land from landowners and gave it to peasants, often had incentives to, um, you know, they wanted to stay in power. These were authoritarian regimes. And so what they wanted to do was exert authority over the countryside as well and exert coercion over the countryside. So they wanted to create, um, you know, sort of a dispersed set of people across the countryside that could be easily, um, that, are, that were politically pliable and that could be manipulable in certain ways. And so one way of doing that was to withhold property rights from individuals. Um, and so, you know, if you don't have property rights, as I mentioned previously, you may not be able to do things like use your land um, as collateral to get a loan from a bank, right? Um, or to, um, you know, to be able to purchase seeds or fertilizer for planting for next year or something. So it creates all, this, all these problems for people, all these practical problems with how you live on a daily basis. And what governments did, and they were very smart about doing this, is they, so they created these market failures by withholding property rights. And then they went and created this panoply of government agencies to fill those market um, failures or to address those market failures. And those agencies then provided the things that people needed, um, but they required people to interact with them on an iterated basis over time. Um, and that enabled the government to get to know these people better. Um, and, it, and it gave them this sort of coercive leverage over people to say, look, you know, we can help you out, but you've got to help us out too. Um, so when it comes this is, to- Mike, this is extortion. What's this, that? Extortion? this is extortion. Yeah. I this mean, is yeah. racketeering and extortion. There's a, there, there, there are words for this. Yeah, in a systematized way. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, of course, couched in those terms, right? Um, and there were, in some cases, reasons, other reasons why governments ended up in this outcome of having, you know, of, of, you know, land beneficiaries not receiving property rights. So in some cases, they wanted to make sure, for example, that you didn't lose economies of scale in agriculture when you expropriated large land holdings. So they started to force people into, you know, cooperatives um, or into collectives in order to farm that land collectively. But then they very quickly realized the benefits of this um, of this withholding of property rights um, very quickly. And so they, they continued to do that for very long periods of time. So a lot of countries ended up living under what I call these property rights gas for decades or more. Um, so that was true in Mexico, you know, up until the 1990s, basically. So from the Mexican Revolution until the 1990s, that was going on. Um, and even really until the early 2000s, it's still true in, in Cuba. Um, and it's not unique to Latin America either, I should say. You know, China, for example, did this after after the um, you know civil war after after World War II, basically expropriated large landowners and and didn't give people property rights in the countryside. But yeah, it's it's a, a really kind of amazing what what happened, um, and it was really um, you know really fundamentally impacted how people live and die. Well, one of the things you do in the book is you draw a relationship between these property rights gaps and democracy democratization. So can you kind of walk us through how you link those two? Yeah. So as I mentioned previously, you know, most of these property rights gaps were created under authoritarianism. So there were these authoritarian rulers that were able to, for a variety of reasons, you know, um, came, were at loggerheads with large landowners. And when they were um, at loggerheads with them um, and these large landowners were you know, to the extent that they were rivals to incumbent leaders, they, they sought to get rid of that. The best way of doing that was to eliminate their economic and social basis of power through land reform. And so that these programs happened under dictatorship 
Um, and they created these large property rights gaps, but dictatorships didn't last forever, right? So we've already talked about how democracy came at a few different time periods in Latin America. Um, and so when, when democracy came, there was you know, a real shift in the balance of power um, in certain ways, or, or a real empowerment is maybe a better way to put it, of, um, of people in the countryside. And so people for the first time could actually um, try and encourage their politicians or vote for politicians that would extend them greater property rights. Um, and that would deliver them things that they, you know, things that they wanted. And property rights were certainly in that bundle of things that, that people tend to want, tended to want in the countryside. And so, um, so you had for the first time, you know, democratic politicians who would actually, um, you know, campaign in part on doing things like granting property rights. And so new democratic regimes really started to close these property rights gaps. And it didn't happen necessarily overnight um, in many places, but it, it did happen reasonably quickly. And, and it was supercharged when, you know, rural populations themselves actually played an important role in uh, or were empowered politically under democracy. But Mike, I think what I mean, you're making this sound very easy, but isn't the reality that <clears throat> You know, the the impetus is when people have been living kind of in in you know massive inequality, inequality in property rights, inequality in land holding and everything. You know, you're a democratically elected or popular leader. The impulse is kind of Chavez, right? It is to just have a massive redistribution to the people who have just been left out of the system, right? And take it from the mm -hmm. oligarchs, take it from the wealthy. Mm -hmm. And I think people don't have an appreciation for how hard it is to balance the impulse to do that, you know, witness Chavez in Venezuela or Mugabe in, in Zimbabwe, uh, at the same time as pleasing this really large constituency of voters who put you into office, who want things done right away. Mm -hmm. um, it, is, there a, is there like a country in Latin America that did this the best or sort of was able to balance the sort of, you know, uh, redistribution populism on the one hand versus um, I can't make the whole system collapse on itself right away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, maybe maybe even to take a, another step back beyond that, you know, I should say that you know property rights didn't always come um, under democracy. So sometimes it came from by, through international pressure. And so you know, international financial institutions sometimes extracted. You know, they were trying to. Um, you know, shift. Uh, you know, shift the macroeconomy in a lot of countries and change how um, how business was done. And so, oftentimes, property rights reforms were a part part and parcel of um, you know stabilization programs, right? So you had countries like um, you know like Bolivia, for example, in the mid 1990s, and Mexico in the early 1990s that were undergoing various um, crises. And um, you know, international financial institutions came in and said look, you know, you also have to implement property rights reform. So that happened in, under dictatorship and um, at, the, at, the, at the end of sort of the dictatorship when it was starting to open a little bit in Mexico and, and under, under democracy in Bolivia. But you also have, um, you know, you have, um, you know, Peru, I think, is an interesting example in which you also had the, uh, the IMF played an important role in the, in the 1990s, but property rights titling became very popular really across the board. And so after Fukimori was run out of office in, in the year 2000, um, you know, property rights um, um, and property titling was something that remained very politically powerful and, um, and, and politicians actually competed on it. And, um, you know, you see if you travel throughout the countryside, you see all these, um, you know, signs all over these billboards supporting um, for example, this organization called Profopri, which is basically a, a land titling um, agency from the from the federal government. And so, um, you know, so Peru has done really a pretty good job. You know, some of the listeners might be familiar with Hernando de Soto, which was, you know, who was really kind of this, um, you know, emitted kind of this clarion call for property rights, you know, and the World Bank picked it up to a large degree. Um, but a lot of countries have kind of struggled with this. And you're right that some democracies and some democratic leaders have used these property rights gaps to their advantage. And so you have, you know, democratically elected leaders in the, um, you know, in the 80s, 70s, 80s, for example, in um, the um, Dominican Republic, um, or even in the aftermath of the, um, of, uh, the transition to democracy in Brazil in the mid-1980s, that basically sit on large property rights gaps for a long period of time because they're politically useful them too. And so it's only when you get these sort of 
shifts um, these, um, whether it's, uh, you know, people organizing from below or you get political competition that you actually start to get some of these gaps closing. But let me let me push back on one part of it, which is didn't the granting of property rights basically to private individuals or entities or, or what have you, isn't that also in part to explain things like cartel violence and rampant criminality? Um, so what do you mean in terms of, um, yeah, do you want to say a little bit more? Well, about I, I, I guess what I'm thinking is like, you know, the Mexico democratizing after the 1990s and sort of the, the end of the pre's reign dominate party dominance and democratization and sort of the it's it, it seems like it's kind of this like wild wild west um you know supercharged economy where anybody you know who's able to claim something is then able to use it well now if i have a property right over land or trucking i can now um and i'm not the government i can use that for illegal you know, I can use that basically for illegal ends, right? So now that if I own property near the border, I can allow somebody to dig a tunnel or if I own, you know, a transportation uh, company that has lorries, I can um, allow those to be used in the furtherance of criminal activity. Under a dictatorship, you know, presumably the dictator could be colluding with criminal elements, but under a dictatorship, if they actually controlled this or controlled a lot of it, they would also be able to stop it. So mm -hmm. isn't the sort of liberalization of property rights and democratization, would you say that that might be in part to explain some of the criminality we've seen, say, over the last 20 to 30 years? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, so I would say pro that's probably not the case in the rural sector over land um, for, for some reasons that are kind of unique to Mexico. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's an element of truth to that, um, broadly, more broadly speaking. And so let me, let me say a little bit more about what I mean by, by that. Um, you know, in in the case of Mexico, you know, land that was granted to um, people in the aftermath of the Mexican Revolution, really throughout the course of the 20th century, um, it was done so in a form called ejidos, which were basically collective, collectively owned lands. And the government withheld titles from them, and they, they created these property rights gaps. So people really didn't had access to land, but they didn't have access to property rights there. In the 1990s, there was, um, you know, a land titling effort to, um, you know, to grant property rights to individuals within Ejidos. And it turns out that Ejidos haven't really broken up. And so these, these, um, these communal forms of farming are still, um, are still very prevalent in Mexico. And individuals don't necessarily um, farm in a communal fashion anymore, but they, they own land collectively. And so it, I don't think that Ejidos per se and the property rights over Ejidos are super tied to the um, you know, to things like, uh, you know, the drug war and trafficking and criminality. But I will say that that the the other element of things we're talking about here, you know, democracy dictatorship is quite quite related to this, I think. Um, you know, the pre, the, the um, you know, the dictatorship that ruled from basically the time of the, from the 1930s until, um, until 2000, created this kind of, um, um, they taunt really with uh, with drug trafficking organizations um, and and criminal groups in certain ways and um, and that 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 they taunt um, you know shattered in when the pre was ousted from power um, or when they were voted out of power in two thousand and so new presidents in the two thousands actually started to attack some of these groups for the first time um, and that created. A lot of problems. So on the one hand, these groups started to fight back. On the other hand, in, individuals at the top of these groups started to become started to um, either be killed off or captured or imprisoned. And as a result, you had the proliferation of um, of organizations, and you had a lot of infighting as well. And and so there was a lot of fighting over territory and things like that. Um, and that I think really was important, and that was tied in certain ways to the to the transition, and probably you know, was also tied to, um, you know, the privatization of certain assets that happened at the same time as land started to become, um, you know, get greater property rights as well. Mm -hmm. well. Walk us through kind of the last 10 years in Latin American democracy, you know, it, sort of globally, everybody's kind of panicking about democratic backsliding or retrenchment in the last 10 years. What, what has been the story in Latin America, if you can sort of say what it is, um, you know, kind of on average or overall? And where are the places that you're sort of looking at in terms of like next 10 years, definitely democracy growing, strengthening versus where you're really worried about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
I mean, you know, going back to the early 2000s, um, the transitions to democracy in countries like Mexico and Peru were enormously important in bringing the region closer to fully democratic. And also more recent years, a number of countries, um, you know, I've certainly been heartened by the fact that, that a number of countries have beaten back attempts to aggrandize executive power, um, like Argentina and Colombia. Um, you know, Chile is finally reckoning with its authoritarian past, the, the past under Pinochet, by um, getting rid of Pinochet's um, constitution and writing a new constitution. So they're actually electing a new constituent assembly um, in early April to replace that constitution. Um, and on the inclusion dimension of a democracy, the region has generally been trending in the right direction, with millions of people entering the middle class, advances in women's rights and political participation and important advances, really important advances in the treatment of minorities and indigenous populations. Um, but, you know, not all is, um, is well and good. I mean, we've already talked about Venezuela and Venezuela's, um, you know, decline into dictatorship. There have also been um, a lot of challenges to democracy in other countries of the region as well. And, and um, for a variety of reasons, you know, it's a pretty diverse region, but, um, you know, part of it is tied to, um, you know, corruption scandal. So there was this enormous corruption scandal that erupted in, in Brazil, um, known as this the car wash uh, probe scandal that generated uh, has generated enormous amounts of political instability throughout the region, um, because basically you know there was a, a company Odebrecht that was that was um, you know through this probe um, you know basically started um, tattling on on all the politicians that it was paying off. Uh, and bribing for infrastructure projects throughout the region. And so politicians have started to fall like dominoes in some of these places, and it's generated a lot of political instability throughout the region. And it's, it's, it's really made voters very disappointed and disaffected with democracy as well. Um, and so they've hounded a lot of people out of power because of that. And so that, that has really created a lot of instability and it's generated some, um, some backlash. But Mike, this is a very controversial point because I share your um, what I think is an observation of the tension between corruption and democracy, because I think in a weird way, you need democracy to know that the leaders are corrupt, right? You need free media, you need an independent judiciary, you need freedom of information for people to just literally be informed about what their leaders are doing. And, and a dictatorship can control information in ways that a democracy can't. But then it's like once people, once all the dirty laundry is aired, you know, and it, it, like literally like money laundering, right? Like in Brazil, mm -hmm. then people are like, well, wait a minute. What, <laughs> we don't like any of these guys. And it turns out that it's everybody. It's the left, it's the right, it's this party, it's that party. And then they either support people that um, make promises perhaps that are populist saying that they will go after corruption in more of an authoritarian way, or they blame democracy itself for the, um, you know, but for democracy, there would not be corruption. Um, because mm -hmm. political competition drives the desire for politicians to need to use corruption as a way to then win in that competition. Mm -hmm. um, is that the right way to think about it? Or is it actually, I mean, is it other thing, you know, is it really not democracy's fault and there really isn't that tension? Yeah, no, I think there, I think there is a tension with that. I think you're right. I mean, I think it is certainly there's a greater degree of transparency in a democracy than there was under dictatorship in a lot of these places. Um, and that, you know, simply, um, you know, shining a spotlight on some of these issues has created, uh, has created a lot of, um, you know, discontent. On the other hand, you know, in, in some of these countries, you actually, you had, you know, historically maybe um, a greater degree of, um, you know, sort of iron rule under authoritarianism. And in some cases, the corruption was not extremely high. I mean, it's not that there wasn't corruption and it's not like there weren't, there were human rights abuses, there were a lot of problems, but, um, but some people look back at, at these periods of dictatorship with, um, you know, with a degree of nostalgia. And so that's true, for example, in a country like, uh, like Brazil, right, with the election of Bolsonaro in Brazil. And so you have, you know, and, you know, a lot of corruption scandals and a lot of problems in the judiciary going on in Brazil. Um, in you know, sort of under under Lula, and then as as Lula is is ousted from office, um, and people start you know, people start realizing you know this is maybe there's a maybe there's a different way to do things, and that and there's um, you know there was there was some some benefits to this to this past right, um, and you know Brazil is a little bit more complicated by the the um, violence as well, and so 
you know, under democracy, you get this real, this real explosion of, um, you know, of things like petty crime and, and homicide um, and gang violence. And it's come to affect really a lot of people. And so, um, so, so people are also, you know, yearning for a greater degree of, um, of security. And so they start to turn to people who, um, you know, oftentimes populists, right, who, who promise to just get rid of the entire old class and go back to an old school style of, you know, direct connections with the people and, you know, and sort of strong man kind of rule, if you will. Um, and, you know, of course, the problem is with a lot of these populists, that they don't necessarily live up to that. And then they, they erode checks and balances against themselves and can entrench their own rule, which can lead to problems like, you know, a tailspin like in Venezuela or something, right? Um, but you no, know, I, I think there, I think there's an element of truth to, to what you're saying. So Mike, let me end big picture, which is what do you think the lessons are that Latin America lends to democracy globally in the 21st century? Yeah, I think there's a few lessons, um, you know, well, there are probably many lessons, but there are certainly a couple that immediately come to mind. One big lesson, I think, is not to take democracy for granted. There are many challenges that can arise to democracy, and it's far from sure that countries can contain those challenges. Um, democracy can seem very solid, but then fail in spectacular ways years later. Um, that lesson shouldn't be lost, of course, on the United States, which just had a brush, um, you know, I would argue, with the, with the same under, under Trump. Um, another lesson is not to underestimate the consequences of popular discontent and polarization. Democracy has a hard time thriving when a country set against itself or when significant portions of the population do not approve of how things are going. Those aren't easy things to fix, of course, um, discontent and polarization. But, you know, training the state on improving basic livelihoods and working for the bottom line, I think, can go quite a long way. Um, you know, it's also worth pointing out that despite some real headwinds, democracy is still the main event in Latin America. Most observers wouldn't have predicted that 50 years ago. In that sense, that there's also an optimistic message, which is that democracy is possible even in societies that face a lot of growing pains. Well, Mike, I think that's a great place to end. Um, Mike Albertus from the University of Chicago, thanks a lot for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, James. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.